Good morning. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you, let me tell you. All it takes is being down, and so many of you understand what sickness is. It's been a, that kind of a season, and some of you are still watching from live stream because you can't be with us. And uh, I just want to, let me set this over here somewhere. There we go. Please don't fall. Stop, stay, <laughs> sit, sit. Um, I, I want to say that, uh, isn't it interesting, though, when you've been down, the lessons, if you're listening, that God can teach, that he can only teach uh, when you're not feeling well, when you're in weakness. And all I have to do is look around this room, and I see people who, boy, what you've been facing, wow. And it's not just for a week or a month or a couple months. Uh, over a year, two, three years, some of you, the struggle, the suffering. But I, I'm, I'm learning so much. I, I was telling uh, Rini, the one thing I'm trying to really focus on that the Lord, I feel, is compelling me to focus on is that uh, in my prayer life, uh, when you're not feeling well, isn't it interesting how quickly we go right to our prayer list the things that we're not feeling good about, you know? And uh, I felt like I just really felt convicted. That's just wrong. Um, my God is the same God whether I feel good or not. And he demands and he is worth worshiping. Uh, and especially when you're, when you're down. You know why? Because in your weakness... He is strong. Is he not worth worshiping over that? That he's there to lift you up and encourage you? So there's still been moments where uh, I forgot that little wonderful point that he gave me. <laughs> and then there's other times where I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful for it. I'm learning, I'm growing. It just advances, it, 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 it magnifies the worship of God. So I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful to be here. And uh, I want to continue in this wonderful series. I must give thanks to Pastor Brenton, who has done just a superlative job for us, bringing the word the last two Sundays. Amen. Tremendous. And uh, it's just been a great series. I know what we talked about prior to December, and everything we talked about, uh, boy, the Lord really used him to deliver that message. And uh, we'll continue today in that message. I also thank the elders. They're so supportive and helpful and encouraging. Uh, they, they, they pray continually. They're, they're practicing scripture. And, uh, and 
Pastor Scott has been filling in on Wednesday nights for us uh, over at the, the plaza, does a great job, or plaza, at the uh, Bureau uh, Christian Church. He does a great job there. But we're, we're thankful just to be here today and, and, and share. So the series is The Coming of the Divine. And in week one, Pastor Brenton brought us the question, who is coming? And of course, the answer is the divine Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then last week was, how did he come? And the answer is the divine incarnation. He came in human flesh and blood. And all that that means to us and the significance that God would become flesh. And today, I want to focus on why did he come? In his own words, why did he come? You see, 2,000 years ago, deity put on the robe of humanity. Think about that. Deity put on the robe of humanity. I hope that never becomes a common thought to you. But it does. And that's a shame. To ever become common in my thinking that Jesus is God, but 2,000 years ago chose to, to come in human flesh. That, that's incredible. R.C. Sproul said it this way. I love it. He said, what we celebrate at Christmas is not so much the birth of a baby, but the incarnation of God himself. The coming of the divine was like no other event in history. It became the critical point of history from both directions. Everything happening in history up to that point and all of history moving away from it is highlighted by one single cataclysmic event in history. And it was so obvious to the world that this was the high point of human history that they made it the very crossroads of time. Everything before his coming is B.C. Everything after his coming is A.D., the year of our Lord. The greatest event in history of the world is Jesus Christ coming to this world. This Christmas, in the midst of all the lights and the twinkling and all the sounds and the savoring of flavors, listen, don't forget the most important thing. God came to be with us. The world even celebrates in small part the divine. Even though they don't really know much about him, they do celebrate his birth in Bethlehem in the manger. And they do a really good job of marketing the whole season in which he came with tree ornaments, you know, and office parties, gift exchanges, and Christmas songs. And if you really listen carefully to the voice of yesteryear, you'll even hear comments made by very important people, supposedly by the world standard, that really place Jesus Christ above all others. Even a French atheist said this, quote, whatever may be the surprises of the future, Jesus will never be surpassed. A famous French war general, he was kind of short, maybe that gives it away, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other man in the world, there is no possible comparison. A modern historian said, 
a person named Jesus gave certain men such an, impa such an impact as to be unequally by far in the entire annals of the, of the human race. After nearly 2,000 years, that impact is not at all spent. But daily, there are people who have tremendous revolutionary experiences which they associate with Jesus Christ. The personality of Jesus is without parallel. It is unique and incomparable. So the world knows a little something about Jesus. They know, they know to celebrate that he came. That's called Christmas, and the whole world celebrates. They know where he came. Everybody knows he was born in Bethlehem. The songs give it away. They know uh, how he came, a little baby. And they even know when he came, 2,000 years ago. But what doesn't the world know about Jesus Christ? As a church that believes in Jesus as the Son of God, I think this morning it's important to take our time and work through Scripture and come to understand why Jesus came. The world has no clue as to why he came. It's interesting that the world would have detailed chronology of everything surrounding his coming, the star, the shepherds, the wise men, the manger, a stable, everything all the way down to the baby being wrapped in swaddling clothes. They get all of that. Yet the world doesn't have the correct answer to the most important question in all of history. Why did he come? How can you make such a claim that the world doesn't know why he claimed, Pastor Greg? Because I've watched all 10,000 Hallmark Christmas movies. <laughs> and I walk away knowing that the world is clueless as to why he came. I've listened to the 10 million songs down through the ages that have been written about the Christmas story. And all it reduces down to is three wise men, three, and every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. The conclusion is it doesn't matter what, that he came, when he came, or where he came, if you don't know why he came. So take your Bible out, and if you have a notepad or a piece of paper and a pen, I want you to write down these five reasons why Jesus came. And you say, well, what makes your five reasons better than somebody else's? How do I know, you know, to listen to yours? Because I'll just tell you right out of the gate, they're not mine. I'm going to tell you why Jesus came from what Jesus said. Jesus actually in the Gospels tells us why he came. Number one, the first reason why he came, he came to serve the will of his Father. He came to serve the will of his Father. We're going to be looking through Scripture today, so have your Bible out, have your thumb, your index finger really ready, pliable, ready to move. Here we go. He came, number one, to serve the will of his Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, capital S, speaking of himself. Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking of himself. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I want you to notice he didn't come to his own or come uh, for his own will. Look at verse 37, the one right before. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He came solely to fulfill the will of God the Father. In other words, God had a master plan, and God's master plan was to redeem people. And he sent Christ to gather those people together and to raise them up to him at the last day. Jesus, even though he came in flesh and blood, didn't come to do a human work. It's amazing how many people think they know why he came. And the first thing they point to is how nice he was to everybody else, and he loved everybody, and he didn't try to make certain people feel less than other people, and they go to all the social dynamics. That's not why he came. Jesus, even though he came in flesh, didn't do human work. He didn't come to do what we thought he should do. He didn't come to do what he thought was best. He was not a wise sage who had a good plan for helping the human race. He was not a political revolutionary who tried to overthrow social abuses in this world. He was not a well-meaning religious founder who spawned a religion of his own. He came on a divine commission to fulfill a plan preordained by God from the foundation of the world. And this is what the Father wanted him to do. So he just did it. John chapter 4, verse 31. Write that one down, verse 31. We'll read down through verse 34. John 4, 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? He just said he has food that you don't know about. Did somebody sneak some food to him? Jesus heard this conversation and he said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus saying here? I'll tell you what he's saying. The only food that satisfies me is doing the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus came to do the Father's will, to serve the Father. That's point number one. Point number two, he came to speak the word of God. He came to serve the will of God. He came to speak the word of God. John 18, John 18, verse 36 I'll give you a second to get there. John 18, 36. When speaking with Pilate, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Like so many people, really the whole world in our day, Pilate had had it with trying to find truth. He gave up on truth a long time ago. Too many opinions, too many philosophies, too many religions. How can you possibly make sense out of all of it? For most people, the more that they try to find truth, the more cynical they become. Truth doesn't lead to freedom, it leads to bondage in this world. So you just give up on the quest to find truth. But when you come to understand who Jesus really is, and you come into the truth, when Jesus talks about God, he speaks the truth. When Jesus talks about man, he speaks the truth. When he talks about sin, he's speaking the truth. It's amazing today how today there's not sin that is talked about. You go to a counselor and they describe some disease or some issue, some psychological disorder that you have. You don't have to repent of anything. There's nothing to repent of today. When he talks about the birth and the life and the time and the eternity and love and peace and joy and everything that, that he talks about, he's, all, he's talking about truth. It's all truth. That's all Jesus talked about. So you and I can take the word of God and open it to to whatever passage we want, and with absolute confidence, we can know that's the truth. Why did Jesus come? Jesus said to Pilate, I came to speak the truth of God, and if you were of God, you would listen. Interesting. If you're not looking to be of God, if you're not of God, you won't hear Jesus' words as truth. He's just another truth, like everybody else's truth. But if you know he's God, how can you place him in the same category as everybody else? You listen more carefully because you know he doesn't mince words. He came to serve the will of God. He came to speak the truth of God. And thirdly, he, he came to carry forward the law of God. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is a familiar passage because not long ago we studied the entire gospel of Matthew. So we hit this passage pretty well. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When God instituted the law in the Old Testament church, he had a purpose in mind. I want you to hear the purpose of the law for the Old Testament. We did not live in that period of time, so we don't understand it. We also are not Jewish, 
by birth, so we don't have the history of it like they do. But I'm going to tell you what the truth is according to the Word of God for the purpose of the Old Testament law. It was not to make you so that you could be free of your sin. It was not to give you this sense of accomplishment, self-righteousness, that you're good in God's eyes. Listen, the purpose that God had in mind with the law was not to make the law so man could keep them, but so he, could, he would never be able to keep them. He never wanted man to gain self-righteousness by keeping the law. He made the law for the purpose of breaking the back of man, breaking the will of man. The purpose of the law was to show men they were hopeless, they were incapable, they were incompetent, they were sinful, they couldn't keep it. And so in their brokenness, they would crawl to God for mercy and he would love and forgive them in his grace. That was the purpose of the law, to point them to the fact that they'll never be good enough keeping the law but the law will point them towards the one who is good enough, Messiah, Jesus. It was to show a man no matter what he did, he couldn't cut it. It was to frustrate him so that in desperation he fell before a holy God and pleaded for mercy. And in the Old Testament, a plea was indicated by the offering of a sin offering or a trespass offering. This was man saying, I can't cut it, God. I can't achieve it. I never will. So I fall on your mercy. I place my sins. I'm asking you by the priest to place my sins on this guilt offering. I'm guilty. But then you have the Pharisees who come along, gritting their teeth. We're going to do it. We're going to keep this baby straight and thorough. We've got to make a few changes to the law, but when we're done with it, we'll be able to keep it. And so they gave over 600, 614 rules based on the moral code of God. And they said, these are things that you can all do. Because why? They were all external things. External things. You can do it. And they set it up. And then they walked in it. And they wore these big robes, white robes. And they would walk around like they're so much better because they're so self-righteous. And that's still what man is doing today. Man has found all kinds of external mechanisms for making himself feel righteous before a holy God. So man will give to his favorite charity Man will go out and feed the homeless. He will go out and do all kinds, and this is popular among many churches today, social justice. You know what that's all about? You trying to feel better about who you are. You cannot add an ounce of goodness, righteousness to you in God's eyes by all the things that you do. They stay within the societal rules so they can feel self-righteous. But here's the problem. You're still ignoring the commandment of God because the commandments of God are not only what comes out of you, it starts by what is in you. 
Matthew chapter 5. Turn, please turn to Matthew 5, verse 19, if you're not already there. So Jesus said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, okay, you've heard what the Pharisees have said about the law, all the externals that you're to keep and that you can keep. But I'm going to take you back to the original intent of the law, which is to frustrate you, to break your back because you can't live them. So let me go ahead and just, let's lay aside what the Pharisees have told you. Let me tell you the truth. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. These guys kept that, those rules that they created perfectly. How can I possibly even do better than that? They're perfect in it. Well, Jesus pressed in. Now he explains what he really means. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You think if you just don't kill somebody... You're good with God and you're a righteous person. I say to you, if you gave any angry thoughts toward another individual, you're guilty. It's the same as murder. What does he mean by that? They both land you in the same place, an eternal damnation in hell. He obliterates this concept that somehow we can be good enough on the outside. And he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27, go down just a little ways. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And so many in the room, oh, I'm good there. I've never committed adultery. Boy, the Lord must be so proud of me. In fact, I'm proud of me. In fact, I can go around town and I can hold my chest out because I've not done what that guy's done. Jesus said, but I say to you, everyone, not a few, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That changes everything. There is no person who has not lusted. Women say, well, I don't look at men that way. I just don't. I've got my husband. I don't. Let me just go ahead and give you another one. Jesus said, do you covet what other people have? See, that's an internal thing, isn't it? Nobody knows what you're really coveting. God does. And if you think you're good enough not to covet you're better than every other human being on the earth that's why you have to come to the cross and you have to repent of your sin that's why you need God's forgiveness you need his righteousness 
You need him to be your fulfillment of the law. And that's what Jesus came to do. His purpose was to come and to carry forward the law of God that man could never carry on his own. It broke his back. But that was the purpose. So that it would humble you. It would cause you to fall on your face. Jesus said of the one Pharisee, look at him. Look at how he comes to God. Look at it, listen to his prayer, standing on the street corner, broadcasting how wonderful he is, how good he is, how much money he gives, and then looking down upon that sinner as if that guy is in such bad shape. I'm nothing like him. And then Jesus, now look at that sinner who can't even lift his eyes to heaven. His sins are so great. And he rips his chest clothing and he says God have mercy upon me a sinner and Jesus said to them which one do you think went home justified which one was justified in the eyes of God he came in order to carry forward the law so that men would humble up not bow up and they would fall upon the mercy of Jesus and what he offers us. Let me give you two more quickly. Number four, he came to save the lost for God. He came to save the lost for God. The passage would be Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For sake of time, you won't have to turn there. It's a very simple verse. Jesus is speaking. Again, he's the one giving us all these reasons why he came. He says in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I love this story, Luke 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus, the chief of all tax collectors. And that meant that you were the chief of all sinners because tax collectors were wicked. They worked for Rome. They collected taxes for Rome. And the way they got paid was they were allowed to excise above what Rome was expecting, and whatever they excised above what Rome expected, they could keep. So they would rip off people. And this was Zacchaeus. And he learns that Jesus is walking his way. And so <coughs> he was like Napoleon. He was short. He climbs up in a tree because he wanted to get a shot of Jesus. I want to see this man. And of course, Jesus walks, and as he's walking under this sycamore tree, probably more like a mulberry tree, as he's walking under it, he looks, he stops, and he looks up, and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. I'd like to spend some time with you today. And Zacchaeus climbs down out of the tree and they go together. They have conversation. They have fellowship. By the end of the fellowship, Zacchaeus says to him, I'll give back everything and more that I have taken from people. I was a thief, and I'll give it all back and more. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Two things happened. The divine, listen now, the divine sovereign call of God on Zacchaeus. 
Jesus knew who he was going to speak with that day before he got there. It was God. Remember now, he didn't come to do his own will. From the foundation of the world, God had revealed. He revealed who would respond. And he comes to Zacchaeus. So you have divine calling. And then secondly, you have human response. Zacchaeus didn't have to go. He could have rejected Jesus. He could have looked at the crowd, looked at Jesus and thought, I'll lose face in the crowd. I'm not going with you. Divide calling. Human will to decide. Listen, they're both taught in the Bible. Do not skip one so that you can claim the other. They're both taught. And this man was called by God, and this man did exactly what it looks like when a person is saved by God. They gladly responded and went with Jesus. This is the story of Zacchaeus. And this is the story of every person who's ever truly been saved. There was a divine call, and there was a human reaction in the positive. I receive by faith this calling. That's the human response to the will of God. The divine decree, the human response by Zacchaeus. And then in conclusion, Jesus made, gave these words after having this conversation with Zacchaeus and him getting saved. For the Son of Man came for this reason, to seek and to save lost people. If you're here today, you're sitting outside, maybe you're sitting inside, whoever you are, and God has been calling, and you have been rejecting, you don't want to do that. The last point will we'll bring that home. You want to be like Zacchaeus. You want to say, yes, Lord. You want to affirm and do exactly what he's asked you to do, and that is to follow him. So we come to number five. Not only did he come to seek and save lost people, I don't take joy in sharing this with you. These are not my thoughts. This is not some kind of a trip that I'm on that's trying to push people down. And Listen, this is what Jesus said. He came to serve the judgment of God. He came to serve the judgment of God. In John 9.39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see me and those who see may become blind. In other words, he's saying, I came. And you know what happens when I come? It immediately separates people on one of two sides. This is not the primary reason he came. 
He did not primarily come to serve judgment. He primarily came to seek and save lost people. But the fallout of saying no and rejecting the call of God for salvation places you in this position where Jesus serves you judgment. In John 12, 47, Jesus said, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There's the reinforcement. He didn't come primarily to judge. He came primarily to save. He says in verse 48, John 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. You made me a judge against you when you rejected me. The word that I have spoken, I will judge him on the last day. He came for the purpose to save you. But in reaching out to save you, if you reject him, you bring judgment on yourself. That's why that one passage that a lot of people know but don't understand in the verse that follows, they really don't understand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the purpose of his coming, that you wouldn't perish, but you would have eternal life. Verse 17, though, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In him you have life, and without him you have no life. You have an eternal judgment waiting for you. And it's so interesting how so many want to place the onus on God He's the problem. He's the one that's rejected me. He's the one that has set up these terms that aren't fair. He's not fair. I want to try to draw a picture, an illustration for you that maybe says it a little better than I can say it otherwise. <laughs> if you went to New York City to hear one of the great operas, or to hear one of the great symphonies. And you sat through that entire orchestra symphony. And you listened to the whole thing. And afterwards, as you were walking out, your friend said to you, what did you think of that? And you said, I didn't really like it. It didn't do anything for me. Your friend would say to you, what's wrong with you? The symphony is really not on test right now. You are being tested by it. 
and you just failed the test. You can't find greater sound in this world. And you can't recognize that sound for what it is. That says more about you than it does anything else. Think about one of the great paintings of the world. One of the great paintings that's worth millions of dollars. And you visit the gallery and you stand there before it and you see it. And then you walk away and someone says, what did you think? Like, it doesn't move me at all. Hey, the painting's not on test with you. It's not like the painting is either a good painting or a bad painting and we're still trying to decide. It's a great painting. You're the one that can't see it. You're the one that's failing. This is what it is in the world. This is why Jesus came. As the Son of God, a baby who came for one reason, to die. To go to a cross and die for the sins of mankind. And if you can't see that as the greatest act of love from God, there's something wrong with you. And unfortunately, you will be judged by God for that. I don't know what else to say. I don't know how to say it. All I know is Christmas has a whole different meaning for me this year. I don't ever want to move away from who Christmas is about, why he came, how he came, more than anything else, why he came. Father, I, I just, in this moment, ask that you would speak to hearts. You know who's here. You know right now in this room, who is receiving from you a divine call, call them, Lord. And may they be like Zacchaeus. May they gladly respond. And as they are saved, removed from their, their life of sin, removed from all the guilt of sin and the shame and forgiven by you, may they then want to turn and and do the opposite, led by the Spirit of God to love others and to care for people and, and to live a life for you. Oh, Lord, do your work in us. By the Holy Spirit today, may people be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If today God is speaking and you are saying, yes, I get it now. I receive Jesus as my Savior by faith. Friend, listen to me. That's salvation. If you're not really sure, again, how you're saved, and you'd like someone to talk to you or pray with you that you might be saved, their prayer won't save you, I'll just tell you now. Their words won't save you, but they can maybe explain to you more so that you can, you, can be saved. I'm going to invite the, the elders and I'm going to invite the prayer partners to come and they'll stand across the front and they're here to pray for you for salvation today or to minister to you or celebrate if you were just saved. And I will say this, if you have received Christ today, 
on this wonderful Sunday before Christmas Sunday. Please, in the back, go to the welcome table and let them write down your name and give us just your basic information. We'd like to follow up with you and encourage you in your new salvation. And so please respond, if you will, at this time. Let's all stand. And uh, Brenton, I don't know if you had anything, kind of a song or not, and if you didn't, that's fine. Um, did you or? Okay, that's, yeah, okay, come on up, if you will, just something. Let's just take a moment, standing, time for people to respond as Brenton just plays for us, and maybe it's something we can sing along, but if God is speaking to your heart, it's not important that you sing. It's important that you respond, okay?